0: Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you'll be listening to Episode 3 of Season 4 of the Housing News Podcast. In today's episode, Housing Policy Council President and former Federal Housing Finance Agency Interim Director Ed DeMarco joins the Housing News Podcast to discuss the future of U.S. housing regulation, as well as what the November presidential election could mean for the housing market. During the interview, DeMarco also addresses the unique challenges facing the FHFA as the agency continues to navigate COVID-19's impact on the overall industry. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Now more than
1: ever, homeowners and borrowers of the future need to understand impacts and options during times of financial hardship. Freddie Mac has made home possible for 50 years and is committed to providing assistance and clarity to the housing market. Through all for home SM efforts, Freddie Mac single family is leading the future of housing through insights, education, mortgage, and business solutions. Learn more about resources to help you and the clients you serve at sf.freddymac.com slash affordable
0: lending. Thank you for listening. And here's the third episode of season four of the housing news podcast.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, and this is the Housing News Podcast. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Ed DeMarco, who is President of the Housing Policy Council. Prior to joining the HPC in June 2017, Ed was a Senior Fellow in Residence at the Milken Institute's Center for Financial Markets. From 2009 to 2014, of course, Ed was acting director of the FHFA, where he served as the conservator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and regulator of those companies, as well as the Federal Home Loan Banks. We have named him HousingWire's Magazine Person of the Year for his impact on housing finance. He was also Chief Operating Officer and Senior Deputy Director of the FHFA and its predecessor agency from 2006 to 2009. His career in public service includes positions at the Social Security Administration, the Treasury Department, and GAO. And we're so excited to have you. I can't imagine someone more qualified to talk on our topic today, which is um, the future of regulation.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's nice to be with you.
1: Before we jump into um, all the policy questions, I did just want to, you know, learn a little bit about you. We, you know, you're a very familiar figure to our industry, but tell us a little bit about why you joined the Housing Policy Council.
2: Ah, so, um, I had a great, as you just went through a, a great 28 year run in in federal service. And after that, I spent three years at the Milken Institute, which is a think tank. And the Milken Institute was a great experience for me. It gave me a chance to really, you know, work on some housing policy questions that were of interest to me, allowed me to do some more independent research and writing, uh, this opportunity at HPC arose. Um, it wasn't something I was looking for, but when I was approached about it, I thought, you know, this could be a very um, um, effective uh, place for me to be because I, I respect the the members that the members of HPC. These are among the largest uh and uh not just the largest players in the housing finance ecosystem but they're really the industry leaders and uh, i was convinced that uh, that my goals and theirs were aligned that we really wanted to have a transparent competitive balanced uh housing finance system for the future and that you know taking on you know reform challenges to really improve the operation of the housing finance system, make it more competitive, um, uh, was something that they shared and I shared, and so I was uh, pleased to join them. I've been there, been at HPC three years now, and, and uh, have not been at all disappointed. It's been a, it's a great organization, and it's a great group of companies to work with.
1: It really makes sense while you're there, and just a you know a continuing arc of your career there and, and public service. So thanks for giving us some insight on that. Um, Let's jump into some policy questions or or just, you know, uh, what's going on, the state of the market questions. So we're seeing about 7% of consumers still in forbearance, depending on the week and depending on what numbers you're looking at. But we aren't at the end of this pandemic. Do you think that number will change drastically before this is through?
2: Hmm. So without knowing more about the future path of the pandemic, it's it's really kind of hard to say. From where we are today, it does appear, it does not appear as though we'll see a drastic change in the forbearance numbers in either direction. We've got some families uh, regaining their financial footing, uh, which leads them to end their forbearance. We've got uh, many more families that are approaching the six month mark. um, As you know, under the CARES Act, Borrowers were eligible for six months of forbearance, and then could request another six months. So servicers are in the process of having uh, those conversations uh, with uh, with their customers, and so that may lead to um, a bit more uh, consumers saying, "You know, I'm I'm ready to to resume um, my mortgage payment." On the other hand, we may see an increase in requests. I don't know how great, but. Been an increase in requests for forbearance as a result of companies that are no longer able to make a, grow, a go of it uh, because they've been experiencing drastically reduced sales volume. There's maybe an end of various temporary supports that they were relying upon. So there still could be some families that actually enter forbearance. Um, so you know, there's that. There's that mix. Uh, one final, one other point I should make here um, that I think is really important. I mentioned that many borrowers are approaching the end of their you know, their six-month forbearance plan. It's really important that these borrowers contact their servicers whether or not they are ready to end the forbearance and resume payment or if they need to extend their forbearance. I can tell you that servicers are working very hard right now to contact these borrowers, but borrowers could really help out by responding to those outreach attempts by their servicers
1: it's a great point and also you know we're seeing people exit forbearance uh, We've we've seen that uptick or we did last week um and but really that's for um through modifications mainly i mean uh, or at least that was the i think it was double last week what it had been so you do see some of that too where people might be exiting forbearance because they can catch you know they can catch up or because they have talked to their servicers
2: right and those conversations are really important i mean each each family's got their own circumstance and it's you know the servicers really are there to help the families figure out what is the best solution for them it's not a it's not a one size fits all when you reach the uh, reach the end of forbearance and different family circumstances you know require different solutions and servicers i think are are, are well prepared to to work with their customers to figure out what's best for their particular circumstance, but having that dialogue is really important to you know uh, both the servicer and the customer making a sound decision for what's in the best interest of that customer.
1: You know, this is this is a related question because it's really like, what do you think lies ahead for our economy and the housing market once forbearance ends? So, say we get to the end of that, you know, whole. Twelve month period that people can take advantage of, and and assuming that it does not get extended again, um, you know, do you see any any big uh, economic cliff coming?
2: Um, uh, I I don't, but it, but I mean, the really the the premise here, is sort of like what the first question is, you know, what's the state of the, you know, the the health emergency that we're having? You know, when we entered this pandemic, the economy was performing quite well. Uh, the shutdowns in response to the health emergency really suppress consumer activity. You know, as people start to feel comfortable resuming activities, I- I'd expect the economy to start showing renewed vigor. And we're seeing that in, in certain, certain areas. But it's not likely to happen all at once. And not all industries are going to return at the same pace. I mean, outside of housing, right? This is a big unknown for for all of us just dealing with the pandemic. What does it mean to go back to normal? It's probably not like a light switch. And presumably, we start to get comfortable with some activities before other activities. And that's going to have its own implications for industry and for the economy in terms of what comes back and at what rate.
1: Yeah, um, you know, let's talk about the FHFA for a minute. You have a unique perspective since you're not only an expert in housing, but you've also been at the helm of the FHFA. So when you look at what are some of the issues that are most difficult for FHFA to solve right now?
2: Yeah, so FHFA has got a, 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 an interesting challenge. They, they've got to uh, balance the uncertainties arising from the pandemic and all the many steps that they've been taken in, in taking in response to the pandemic with the longer term goals that they, uh, that they'd been working on, goals that director Calabria has been quite clear about, uh, with regard to wanting to end the conservatorships. Um, so how to do that responsibly doing it in a way that reduces, not increases market uncertainty is a real challenge. The director testified yesterday, a lot of questions and a lot of discussion during that hearing about the steps. FHFA has been taking to um, respond to the pandemic, to implement the CARES Act, but there remains the the longer term goals that they have. Um, so, you know, that's a that's an interesting and difficult balance that they have right now. I, I expect the director and the staff there are, you know, are, are, are this is out of their minds. But of course, many other folks are awaiting the election and seeing what all that means. It is a basic fact of the conservatorships are structured in a way so that both FHFA and the Treasury have separate and critical roles. Um, And so we'll we'll see how that plays out. But a lot going on at FHFA right now.
1: Yes. Well, you lead right into my next question, which is, you know, with that election in November, we could see a a new administration come in. If Joe Biden does, you know, win the election, what do you think this means for housing policy? And especially You know, you brought up GSE reform and and also the adverse market refi fee, which we've been talking about, you know, might have a a difficult timeline given a change in the administration.
2: Yeah. um, So taking those things separately. So FHFA is an independent agency. um, So I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure I I don't I do not expect a change in the White House uh, to lead to a change in the adverse market fee. Uh, by the time, you know, we reach the inauguration in late January, the fee would have already been implemented for a couple months. It'll be priced into the market. Um, again, referring to the director's hearing yesterday, he's explained this fee is necessary to partially offset the billions and dollars of expenses the GSEs are facing due to the pandemic and the resulting borrower forbearance so you know i think that this you know adverse market fee is going to um go into effect uh december 1st uh, as uh, as has been announced um as for you know and so that's you know what i see happening going into the you know that being the case for the first of the year gse reforms a little bit different right i mean it's you know it's interesting you know since the being and Freddie have been in conservatorship. We've been through both Democrat and Republican administrations. We've had administrations uh, where the where the um, party in charge, you know, in, in the White House, also controlled the majorities in Congress at the same time, and yet we have found housing finance reform remaining elusive. In in at least one way, I suppose that's good because, in my view, the best thing for the country. With respect to having a lasting and sustainable housing finance reform is to have a bipartisan approach, something that can produce new and thoughtful approaches to expanding home ownership opportunities, yet can reduce taxpayer exposure and can produce um, a more competitive financial system. So, you know, we'll see, you know, with the election, regardless of the outcome, uh, you know, the housing finance reform remains this Unfinished business and I expect the Congress uh, is going to want to have some say in it
1: Yeah, it's such an ongoing long long tail, you know, you mentioned that Calabria was a uh, uh, testifying uh, yesterday And I know I saw a stat and this was maybe At the beginning of this year that you you held some sort of like a record for the number of times that you uh, testified before Congress <laughs> <laughs> Not sure That's uh, Given your your term and, and when that happened um, so, you know that is just given your experience and long experience in the space, is there any advice you would give to Mark Calabria or his team as, as they work through these challenges?
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know I've known Director Calabria for a long time, and I can assure you he he does not need advice from me but But I think to your question, I, I can share a challenge to help folks understand a challenge of being FHFA director, no matter who it is, right and that is the public communications aspect of the role you know. Normally, prudential supervisors, and FHFA is a prudential safety and soundness supervisor, prudential supervisors are tight-lipped about the individual companies that they supervise. The supervisory process is inherently confidential. Now, as conservator, you're responsible for the businesses themselves. And business operations also have certain confidentiality expectations. On the other hand, though, there's a there's an expectation of public communication around the conservatorship, so that Congress, investors, the public at large have some idea of what direction you're guiding these companies while in conservatorship. What's the strategy? What's the goal? Um, and I would say, you know, Director Calabria has been quite clear since he took office that um, he believes he has a legal duty towards ending the conservatorship uh, Well, his preference is for congress to do it he has said if congress doesn't act he believes that if the conservatorships achieve all the benchmarks he has set he plans to end the conservatorship for all that to happen without market disruption will require a great deal of careful and clear communications to all outside stakeholders and so he has been communicating his, his, his long-term goal here. Uh, he's noted that the pandemic has certainly set back uh, some of the timeline for that. But um, there's still a lot to do, some benchmarks to be reached, and a lot of communicating to the, to the public about what this, uh, what this path is going to look like if, uh, if we continue this road towards ending the conservatorships.
1: you're going to be speaking at our um, HousingWire annual event on October 8th. We're really looking forward to that, having uh, people of your caliber and and your specific expertise. You're going to be on the panel on the future of regulation. And, you know, what lessons from the past do you think policymakers should remember when it comes to shaping future regulation?
2: Yeah. Um, So we've got a a legislative piece of this and a regulatory piece. Uh, Certainly, let's start with, with legislators. Um, legislators really need to be clear about the goals that they are setting forth. That really is Congress's charge. Um, but the specifics of accomplishing those goals, you know, are oftentimes best left to the regulators. So let's take an example. You know, we had, um, in, in, in the Fannie Freddie space, right. And we had, uh, legislated capital standards and that didn't work out too well. Um, you know, Congress back in the early '90s legislated a capital standard. While there was a rule implementing it, a lot of that rule was dictated by legislation. And so, I think that Congress should be clear about the goals. The regulators should be the ones to implement it. So things like capital standards, you know, whether it's the definition of capital, the amount of capital, how it's done, really should be um, left to regulators to to do. On the regulatory front, um, I think the you know, what what regulators need to um, be particularly mindful of um, in the housing space is we've got a lot of different federal financial regulators with some responsibility for some aspect of our housing finance system and gaining uh, some improved coordination and alignment across across that regulation is really important. It does not help to have you know for example bank regulators viewing mortgage risk in one manner and setting prudential rules for it in one manner and the FHFA taking a really different view about that same mortgage risk so that's why it's interesting and i think was constructive that when FHFA came out with their proposed capital rule um uh, earlier this year part of the focus was even in terms of defining the terms and the basic structure of the capital rules, that they use the bank framework as a way of saying, look we we want to create some reasonable alignment uh, across these across these regulations where it's dealing with the same risk
1: You know interesting that you brought that up because um you you've got a number of federal regulators, but then you also have a a number of state regulators. Um, and, and the rise of state regulation has, has grown quite a bit. And uh, some would say, you know, that was they stepped in when there was when there was maybe less federal regulation. Other people, you know, feel like there's there's plenty of both. And um, uh, I do think that just gives more uncertainty. And And so you have uncertainty from, you know, an economic standpoint, from a political perspective, there might be some changes. If you're a lending executive, you know, what advice would you give to a lending executive right now, planning not just for next year, but five years from now? I mean, how do they, how do they allocate their resources when they're looking at potentially uh, so many of these changes or regulatory changes? Um, What what would you say to them?
2: Yeah, so, hmm, it's interesting. So uh, thinking about, you know, advice to to lending executives um, you know the the regulatory environment i i don't see drastic changes coming there i think it's more in in a couple other directions uh, first i would say maintain underwriting standards um you know that's that's important at, at, at all times to to take care on on underwriting but i think the the thing over the next few years for lending executives First is take advantage of changing technology, which can enhance a lender's ability to serve their customers, no matter the economic or regulatory conditions. Um, You know, we've seen, uh, for example, with the pandemic, it's forced a greater use of technology across several aspects of the lending process. Some of these were changes that were coming on gradually, and the pandemic accelerated it. Um, I think there's going to be some discussions about, you know, which of these are really temporary and which should be made permanent. But technology is going to be a really um, important uh, thing for lenders to keep an eye on. And then the other is to study and reflect on the changing social and demographic dynamic in the country. Um, I think that's going to be really important for mortgage lenders over the next few years. Pleasure.
1: You know what are one or two things you're paying attention to that you think the industry might be overlooking right now? You just mentioned technology, you mentioned the the social and demographic changes is there is there anything there particularly you'd like to talk about?
2: in terms of the social demographic we we need to get better at preparing families to become homeowners, whether that's in terms of borrower education, down payment assistance, and so forth. I think it is worth our while to focus on preparing families to become homeownership, and that preparation is about things that need to happen before you've started going to open houses or working with a realtor. I think that's gonna be important. And the other is we need to think harder about ensuring families have the shock absorbers needed to weather bumps in the road, right? Some jobs uh, people have are inherently more cyclical than others, which can lead to greater income volatility. But as the pandemic has shown, you know, almost all jobs are subject to greater income volatility than we may have imagined before. So I think we need to think of that risk in terms of, you know, we we used to think about it in terms of, you know, how many months of savings does a family have? And that is still critical, but it can be hard for families to build those rainy day funds, especially when they're stretching in order to buy the house and come up with a down payment in the first place and so i think we need some more thought on you know what can we do to um help both make it easier for families and more attractive to families to be building those rainy day funds right after they've you know either either you know before they move in and then certainly once they've you know got the house and got the mortgage to be starting to you know to prepare for those bumps in the road i think those are two really important things Um, I think you also, Sarah, asked me about things that um, so that was on the sort of the, the social and demographic dynamic. You also asked me about you know things the industry might be overlooking or some folks might be overlooking. Uh, there's a couple of things there that, that come to mind. One is that a lot of our housing stock is aging and not all of it is being updated regarding core systems such as plumbing and electrical. Energy efficiency is also an issue. I think we're going to need to be doing some more thinking about how we factor into our underwriting and our lending process especially for low and moderate income families that may be purchasing this older housing stock because it is more affordable. I think we need to be doing some thinking about that. And then the other is, you know, whatever, you know, one may think about climate change as a political issue, it seems clear we're experiencing noticeable changes in weather and that's you know it's resulting in increased risk from flooding hurricanes wildfires and so on you know we've we've not yet achieved a permanent solution to our flood insurance issue we need to but we also need to be thinking more generally about collateral risk arising from these changes we're observing in in weather patterns and how that affects the risk of the of the houses themselves
1: so interesting that you bring that up. We, you know, when we had looked at this year, of course, everyone's uh, projections for this year ended up being being off. But from my perspective, from an editorial perspective, or or what we thought was going to be one of the big stories this year was climate's impact on housing, and we just thought that that was good. This was going to be the year. There was a lot of momentum around it. There was a lot of, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things happen, not just in the you know natural disasters, but also just a a change in really um, people's appetite for for Green living or green housing or whatever. And so we right. thought that was going to be one of the big stories. It just got, you know, bumped off the page completely. Uh, by the pandemic, understandably, but I think that's a really interesting thing that you know we're looking looking forward that's going to be something that our industry has to think about in a way that we haven't thought about it before at least many people haven't thought about it before.
2: Yes, no question.
1: Um. So Leslie, I, I so appreciate your time here. What what are some of the big housing initiatives or policies that you're really passionate about right now?
2: Um, well, I think we just we just covered a a, a, a couple of them, but I would add I'd add one last thing. Um, you know, uh we haven't touched yet on housing supply. Um, we are simply not producing enough new housing, whether it's for ownership or rental to meet demand. And the interesting thing about housing supply is that I think there's a lot of bipartisan agreement emerging on this particular topic, Uh, but we need to figure out how to develop more and to tie that development to transportation networks and to be mindful of the changing consumer interest in mixed use communities, more walkable communities. So how are state and local governments responding to that? Um, And we're also gonna need to be paying attention. I think that the pandemic may be having a meaningful effect on consumer housing choices. And we're still trying to to get a handle on, you know, how much of that is, you know, temporary and how much of that is maybe a permanent change in how folks view their housing choice decision.
1: Yeah, those are two, you know, huge areas. And, And, you know, your comments earlier on the housing stock, aging housing stock and how that's going to play into the inventory going forward they're all just uh, great issues. Um, really appreciate you coming by. That's all we have time for today. But Ed, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And thanks for making time for, for speaking to housing news.
2: You're, you're welcome, Sarah. It's always, always great to be with you. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and write us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's latest podcast, The Daily Download, which is a daily wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories, now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. See you next week.